Hey, Deserving Listeners, we have a really special guest on the podcast today, Dr. Christopher Ryan. Many of you probably know him, but if you don't, he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Sex at Dawn. It was a really popular book, very important book in a lot of ways, challenges a lot of the notions put forth by prominent evolutionary psychologists, which of course all of you will know that I can appreciate. He's been interviewed on, you know, every major TV show and, you know, he's he's one of those kinds of characters that is uh, fascinating to listen to, fascinating to read, uh, extremely smart. He's like Malcolm Gladwell in that way. He spends a lot of time thinking about things and looking at the data, putting it all together in a way that we can all digest and uh, really look at our lives and our societies. The implications of this this new book that he published, Civilized to Death, really looks at how we're living in a context that actually drives us to do things that are counter to our happiness and our well-being and even to our societies. And when you hear him lay this all out and when you read his book, Civilized to Death, it just makes so much sense. And it's one of those books where you're just like, oh, my God, like everyone needs to read this. Everyone needs to hear this guy talk. And he came by my home office, my home studio, and we had a wonderful conversation. So let's just go to that. What can you share with the listeners and me, because I'm fascinated, with uh, some of the most interesting points of your book, Civilized to Death? Um, Most of the information that we have about life before civilization and, in fact, life after civilization is inaccurate in my opinion, and is more political propaganda than it is science. Okay. There's been a centuries-long demonization of life before the state. We could say it began with Hobbes, but it actually goes back to the uh, the beginnings of civilization itself, where people outside the settlement are seen as barbarians and, uh, you know, um, pagans and, you know, outside the realm of decency. Um, So this demonization of the other outside the state has has is sort of an integral part of civilization itself. And self-perpetuating, right? It helps the power structure of the government to paint that as like be a part of society, follow our rules, follow our system. Right. And you're a good Christian, decent, white, whatever the the metric uh, was at that historical moment. Yeah, that's why I say that a lot of this information is more political propaganda than science. And yet in our age, because we live in a supposedly scientific age, the same propaganda is being fed to us, but it's in the guise of science now. Mm. Um, So you have what I refer to as the neo-Hobbesians, writers like uh, Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker and Matt Ridley, who are presenting the same argument that's been presented for thousands of years. So what are things that Dawkins and Pinker saying specifically? Basically that nature is a place of torment and that we're very lucky to be protected from it by the structures of civilization and capitalism and the enlightenment and all these sorts of um, constructions. Um, you know, Dawkins is most famous for the selfish gene in which he popularized this notion that um, our genetics themselves are driven by a ruthless, competitive selfishness that then permeates out into individuals and into social systems. Um, one of the examples that I talk about in Civilized to Death that um, Dawkins and Pinker 
uh, both ascribe to is the selfish infiltrator theory, which um, seems to them to prove that our ancestors could not possibly have been selfless and, and altruistic because any society that was based upon altruism would eventually have to deal with a selfish infiltrator who would um, either arise from within the society or come from outside. And that person would have an advantage in terms of evolutionary uh, payoff because that person would uh, take advantage of the the generosity of everyone else and uh, have more offspring because he's having sex with all the women and he's eating all the food and he's not going and hunting and doing his share. So he benefits from that. And uh, so eventually any one of these societies would shift in the direction of ruthless um, competitiveness in between, you know, within the society because it's sort of like a mutant would always arise and always pull the society in that direction, according to them. Mm. Of course, they ignore decades of anthropological research showing that hunter-gatherer bands have very um, well-established social mechanisms for dealing with this sort of person. Like what? Well, starting with uh, humor. Uh, joking about uh, this person who thinks he's better than the rest of us and who, uh, you know, he shot an antelope. So now he thinks he's the king of the world and making these sort of jokes and ridicule. If that doesn't work, um, the elders might take him aside and explain to him that his behavior is not acceptable. And if that doesn't work, he may be um, exiled from the group or have a hunting accident. Right. So flies in the face of this notion that we're naturally uh, selfish in that we're that it's our natural state and we should just accept it so to speak right and that we should accept the social authoritarian structures that are here to mitigate that selfishness that, so that's where it gets very political right people who are rich for example that manage to selfishly build wealth and to crush their competitors were somehow being natural and and it's right. it's the natural state of things or the fella who has sex with a lot of different women uh because he can or something it's like well that's that's the natural state uh rather yeah. than uh looking again at anthropological evidence uh, pointing towards things, which I'm fascinated to hear more of the evidence because I feel like it's not talked about enough because there's certainly a lot of quote unquote evidence supporting Pinker and Dawkins point of view. They cite a lot of quote unquote evidence as well. Sure. So the idea goes is that contemporary hunter gatherer societies are at least similar to the way our natural state was 100,000 years ago and is important for us to recognize so that we can understand what provides the most well-being. And if we're outside of that, then we're going to start seeing symptoms like anxiety and depression and conflict right. and war and... Obesity, suicide. Because that's all in your book, Civilized. That's the big point, right, is that we're, we've civilized ourselves to death, meaning, you know, actual death, but also like all these other symptoms as a result of of our civilization and 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 yet we believe well civilization is 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 a good thing it's a wonderful thing for us sure and how horrible it must have been back in the past when yeah. in reality the hunter gatherers contemporary are probably and often are living happier more fulfilled lives yeah uh, suicide is virtually unknown among hunter gatherers um the only time suicide 
uh, is prevalent is uh, people who are old and decide to end their lives. Mm. Or to be, you know, let's be honest, not everything's great about hunter-gatherer lives. And one of the things I wrote about in the book is how do they deal with people who become uh, unable to keep up with the band um, th- generally because they're they're too old and decrepit. Uh, one of the ways is um, euthanasia. Um, so I don't mean to to paint the picture as uh, you know some sort of Rousseauian paradise, and there's a lot of uh, infant mortality as well, which was a major issue. We can get into that later if you want to talk about longevity and um, other measures of hunter-gatherer life. Um, but generally, when you look at the way hunter-gatherers live, there is a remarkable consistency, whether we're talking about the Inuit or – in the upper Amazon or in Africa or in Australia or New Zealand or, uh, sorry, New Guinea, there are um, consistencies among all these hunter-gatherer groups. And because um, there are these near universalities, we can presume that they derive from the the interaction between the people and their environment. So, uh, an immediate return hunter-gatherers, people who uh, don't store food. They have no accumulated wealth. They go out, they eat what they find, and the next day they do the same thing. Um, these people are universally termed um, uh, fiercely egalitarian by anthropologists, mm. meaning not only are they egalitarian, but they fiercely refuse any sort of um, – uh, authoritarian uh, impulse. So no one can tell anyone else what to do, not even parents to children. Uh, They don't give orders. People aren't seen as subject to other people's will. Everybody's got their own direct access to the resources of life, right? So if you had, if you imagine from a hunter-gatherer's perspective, the world is, um, provides whatever is needed. It provides the food, the the resources to you know build yourself a hut or to make a bow and an arrow chip a, uh, an arrowhead or a spearhead everything you need is available no one can stop you from getting it so it's not like here in our world where you need money in order to go to the place that has the stuff you want people can stop you they can shut the door they can not give you money they can restrict your access so they have coercive power over you In a hunter-gatherer world, no one has coercive power because no one can stop anyone else from getting what they need. Everyone knows where the the nut tree is and where the fish are. And um, so this is a structural uh, universality in hunter-gatherer groups. Well, I mean, it's fascinating. A lot of Freud's ideas came from this, right, of of the superego and this Mm. notion that we have this id, this primal – uh, caveman self that just wants to take and kill right. and destroy and this this impulse of like you know selfishness and through our civilization and our parents we learn to control ourselves and to um, you know fit in in society uh, despite all of our massive impulses to destroy yeah. uh, what do you think about that well, I think Freud uh, didn't know much about hunter-gatherers um, and, you know, I don't blame him for that. Very few people did at that point in the early 20th century. Uh, anthropology was really just beginning as a science at that point. Um, the racism, uh, 
against Jews, of which Freud was a victim, but also against uh, anyone who wasn't white and European was rampant. Um, the, the idea that the races were uh, sort of ranked according to superiority was totally accepted within the sciences. Um, so Freud's thinking came out of that world, right, which we now know those fundamental assumptions are erroneous. When you look at hunter-gatherers, whether your you know, sources of information are contemporary anthropological research, first um, contact accounts, like I, I quote from the letters that Columbus wrote back to the king and queen of Spain uh, when he first encountered the people in Hispaniola on his first voyage. Um, and you know, there are many accounts from colonial America of contacts between the colonialists and, and the native people. Um, what you find is another universality is the generosity of the native people, of the hunter-gatherers, which again, this I want to be really clear that I'm not presenting a noble savage scenario here. What I'm trying to say is that hunter-gatherers live by certain values that we consider to be admirable, that we look at and say, wow, they share? What a great thing. Unrealistic, but it's great that they share. Um, but what do we do? We've institutionalized sharing. We call it insurance. We, we mitigate risk by paying into a pool and then, in theory at least, when someone needs it, they draw from that pool. That's what sharing accomplishes for hunter-gatherers. And we need to understand that our ancestors survived by cooperating. That's what we do better than any other species. We're not very fast. We're not very strong. We're not good at anything, really, physically, uh, compared to other animals. A chimpanzee is five times as strong as, as a full-grown man. Um, what we're good at is forming these social networks and cooperating. One human alone in the wilderness is helpless and sure to die. Five of them together can bring down a mammoth. So that's what we're good at. And we have evolved uh, very sort of um, developed and acute mechanisms for monitoring each other's behavior, judging trust, judging how much we can rely on one another. And we suffer when those sorts of uh, appetites aren't fulfilled. So the number one factor um, that determines or, or not determines but predicts your longevity is not diet. It's not whether you smoke or not. It's not how much exercise you do. It's not even how much money you have. It's whether or not you feel that you're part of a community of loving people who have your back. Feel as though, not necessarily you are. Obviously, if you are, it's going to help you as well because yeah. they're, they're going to be watching out for you. They're going, to, right. they're going to notice if you have a stroke, for example, and take you to the hospital. Yeah, but you're right. You could be part of a family that loves you, but if you feel isolated – right. Uh, yeah. So you're saying that instinctually or right. biologically, we thrive. Certain systems of our of our biology are optimized right. when we feel perceptually that we're a part of a community and a cooperation with right. other people who and, love us and know us. Think about the worst punishment we give to our worst criminals: solitary confinement, and to children for that matter. Time out. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole section in the book about education and the way we raise children, which is heartbreaking because 
you know, that's where the domestication process is really happening. And, and school, right? The yeah, notion of authority and respect authority. This, is, this isn't cooperation. Right. This, Follow this the clock. This isn't a democracy. Right. This is a, an authoritarian situation. You learn to take orders. You yeah. learn to do what you're told. Hunter gatherers don't understand the world that way. Yeah. So getting to your book, Civilized to Death, there are some ideas that you put forward that are, you know, quite convincing to me about how hunter-gatherer societies even today are in a lot of ways better off than people who are living in quote-unquote society in, you know, in our civilizations. But when I think about living as a hunter-gatherer, I find myself blanching at that. I'm just like, sure. so uh, I'm guessing that my home isn't as warm. It's not as protected from the rain. Uh, I don't have the internet. Yeah. My clothes are made out of harsh leather that isn't very comfortable. You've, I'm guessing, live in society and in, in our American sure. civilization. I'm wearing a Patagonia shirt. <laughs> you have glasses on. <laughs> I have glasses I mean, on. That's one thing I often think about yeah. is like I'm wearing contacts. I, I, I can't even see the big giant E at, yeah. at, the, at the eye doctor. I would be functionally blind if yeah. if I if I didn't have uh, civilization and, and and technology. Do you ever think about that? Like, well, if I was going to follow my book's advice, I, I'd go live in the woods with some hunter gatherer people. Yeah, I, see, this is a sort of a logical fallacy. This mm -hmm. this approach to things. This is like. You know, I, I had a Q&A with someone once and they said, well, if civil, you know, civilization's so bad, you know, you write on a computer, you know, I forget what it was, or you fly in airplanes, or, so you're a hypocrite. It's like, look, following that logic, uh, you know, no one should be complaining about air pollution because we all breathe air, right? There, there's no it, – it makes no sense to say you live in the modern world, so therefore you can't be critical of it. It's like a love-it-or-leave-it approach to, to history or something. Um, you know, and also it's like – that's like saying, you know, I wouldn't want to be a fish because if I were a fish, I'd drown. Like it, no, you would be a fish if you were a fish, right? So if you were a hunter-gatherer, you would know how to live in that society. You would have been raised in that society. And it would have felt fine. You it know? would have felt great to you. So. Right. So it, it makes no sense to say, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. Well, of course you wouldn't because you're here now. You're in this world. And, and I wouldn't either. I wouldn't be prepared. I'm a domesticated human, right? Um, but if you want to understand and sort of, um, you know, do a, like I said before, a cost-benefit analysis that's actually informed by some facts rather than just bias and saying, you know, America is the best or Texas is the best or, you know, 2019 is the best or whatever your particular thing is uh, seems the best to you because you're there. That, mm -hmm. so, but you got to step out of that and look at the whole picture. So let's look at things like um, we, we touched on suicide and depression and anxiety earlier, uh, which are far higher now than they've been uh, – well, than they are for hunter-gatherers, certainly. This morning I just read a new UNICEF report came out. One in three children is malnourished in the world. If we've had progress for 10,000 years, how do we still have one out of every three children malnourished? Suicide rates are, are up 33% in the last 15 years, among teenagers even higher than that. This is not a world that's thriving. This is not a, a success story. 
constant warfare. Success with technology, success with internet. <laughs> right. But again, we need to, what are we measuring? Right. So when someone says... But we're a capitalist society, so we value capitalism. We value, and we're a technological we, society, we value so we technology. say, look at my phone. It does all these amazing things. That's true. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, you needed a camera and a microphone, a recorder and, uh, you know, and a telephone. And now it's one unit. It's yeah. one thing. And, oh, it's amazing. Okay. Yeah, Steve Jobs is like this wonderful yeah. human being who did these wonderful things. Whereas someone who proposes that we dial back technology and actually pay attention to other human beings and, and actually try to optimize our our um, lives in ways that actually make us happier in real in in a real sense is looked at as some kind of luddite or right. something. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's as I was saying, it's it's inarguable that technology is advancing. The question is, what are the effects on human satisfaction? Right. Are people so? My phone's much better now than it was twenty years ago. Are people happier as a result of that? That's the question. Because otherwise, what we're talking about is not human well-being. We're, we're, we're behaving as if we are simply here to assist technology on its journey, mm. which honestly appears to be the case. I don't think most of us have realized that yet. But that's probably the most subversive element of civilized to death. It occurred to me in the writing of this book that civilization doesn't work for us. We work for civilization. It's like Skynet from Terminator or something. Right. We're, we're just the matrix. building up to the Matrix. Yeah. We are feeding this other life form. Yeah. And its agenda is in conflict with ours and we're losing. It doesn't give a shit about clean oceans and fisheries and coral reefs and the ice caps and the polar bears and all the rest of it. It doesn't need those things. Yeah. We do. Yeah. And yet somehow we are being convinced because we're – a species that can't look up from its feet and see long term. We're we're working with these short term incentives, and we're destroying our own planet. And people are telling us this is progress. Hmm. I'm saying if this is progress, why are so many people so unhappy? Why are so many of us living alone? Why are so many of us addicted to mindless drugs? Why are so many of us killing our ourselves? Why are so many of us going out and killing others? These things are not signs of success. And so I think it's time to step back. And I'm not advocating a Luddite approach to life. I, I'm not you know, saying we should all become Amish. So what are you advocating? Because I, I'm interested in what your insights are yeah. for me. I, right. I want to tell me what to do, Christopher. Well, I want, I, what I'm trying to do in this book is, is to give people a more informed way of understanding what's going to work. So one important distinction that, that I made at a very young age, I was – hanging out talking to someone older than me and I remember they said there are two currencies in life there's time and there's money and only one of those can be replenished don't live your life chasing money live your life respecting the time that's flowing by okay. have experiences rather than um, objects right okay. so that's that's one distinction our sense of ambition Especially in America, this uh, sort of, you know, never enough, always get ahead, get more, always be hustling. Bigger house, nicer car. Right. It yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't make you happier. Right. There's a whole section in the book where it's sort of uh, 
I'm sort of joking. I, I, I claim to have devised a new psychological disorder for the next DSM, RAS, which stands for Rich Asshole Syndrome. And uh, I get into this idea that, you know, I always thought that assholes got rich because they were willing to do these unethical things that a decent person wouldn't do, right, to get the money. Behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. You know, that's an old saying. But it occurred to me that it works the other way, too, that when people accrue wealth, they put themselves in a very difficult position. Because I have a lot of friends who are very wealthy or very beautiful. I used to live in this mansion with fashion models. So I got to see what their life was like. Why you know? were you living in a mansion with fashion models? It was uh, my ex. I was in a relationship with a woman who was a booker at a modeling agency. And when we split up, I needed a place to stay. And I didn't have time to look for a real apartment. And I didn't want to impose on her because we'd split up, but we're still living together. And she said, well, I know this mansion, um, this old woman out, this was in Barcelona. And, um, it sounds like a sitcom, by the way. Yeah, it was a Melrose, Melrose Place kind of thing for any listeners the, who are old well, enough to remember. But you'd be the fish out of water, you know. I was definitely. The writer who moves in with the. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even a writer then. I was in grad school. I was teaching English. Um, so the, the idea there is that, you know, you look at the, the psychological research and it shows you that wealthy people are not happier than other people. In fact, they're um, less happy in some important ways. For example, uh, how much wealth someone has correlates indirectly with their ability to read emotions on someone else's face. Mm. The more money you have, the less likely you are to be able to read someone else's inner state by Why? looking at their face. I propose it's because we develop psychological scar tissue to protect ourselves mm. from these wealth discrepancies. And I write about the first time I went to India – I'd been working in Manhattan for a couple of years, saved up a bunch of money, got a one-way ticket from New York to New Delhi, and I was in India, and of course I saw poverty like I'd never seen before, and these kids came. I was sitting at a table um, on the street, sort of at this restaurant, and these little kids came, and they were standing there staring at my food on my plate, and I felt helpless. I felt compassion. But then I felt annoyance. And when the waiter came and shooed them away like they were stray dogs or something, I felt a sense of relief. But I thought about that for a long time. Like, what the hell's going on here? What, what are those emotions? What, what's the appropriate response to this? And a couple times I, I would, like, buy a bunch of samosas and take them out and give them to the kids. But the minute you give five samosas away, there are 50 kids and adults all with their hand out. There's no way to respond to this situation adequately. And it tore me up. Because of civilization. Because this is an inhuman situation, right? Hunter-gatherers never see this situation. There aren't rich and poor. Everyone has the same. And, you know, there's this uh, African expression, the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. Right. There's a reason it feels good to help other people. We're designed to do this. It's not it's not you're doing this for God or you're doing this for your karma or you're doing this for, you know, some sort of payoff in the afterworld. It feels good right now to help someone else. And it hurts not to. 
And we evolved an instinct, if you will, to have that because those tribes that had that instinct and that pleasure center exactly. sets off in their brain when they give to their you know, fellow tribes person are more likely to survive when they are without food because exactly. they'll be reciprocated. Right. So you have people like Steven Pinker and Richard Dawkins, all these people with this sort of um, neo Hobbesian perspective on hunter-gatherers who say, well, uh, the reason, uh, for example, I got into this in Sex at Dawn, my previous book, but the reason they they presuppose monogamy in hunter-gatherer groups is they say, well, if you go out and shoot a deer, you bring that meat home, you will share it with your wife and your kids, right? Because you're trying to protect your genetic legacy. That's what the whole game is about, is getting your DNA into the future. And so you're only going to share your resources with those. You're, you're only going to invest these resources in those children if you're sure that they're yours. That's why men have always been obsessed with controlling women's sexual behavior in order to assure their paternity. But in fact, when you look at how hunter-gatherer groups live, nobody comes back to the village with a deer and only shares it with his wife and his kids. That would get you kicked out of the group. That would they'd Everyone would hate you. They're not going to sit around their fires hungry while you eat this deer and the rest of it rots because you don't have refrigeration anyway. That's not how these people live. And so these these theories of human nature that are uh, based on a misreading of Darwin and uh, a, a willful ignorance of the anthropological literature paint a picture of human beings that's woefully inaccurate. And when you're using that sense of human nature as your map, you're always going to be lost because it's a false map, in my opinion. Yeah, there's data on how getting back to your, you know, people who are uh, rich become assholes rather than people are assholes become rich. There's a ton of data on that around how people who are more wealthy are uh, I can't remember the exact study that I just read about how they're not a, oh they don't stop for pedestrians. Right. Well, that's from Berkeley. That's Dasher. I always forget his last name. He has a strange name. But yeah, he he and his colleagues do this research where they uh, set up a camera at a crosswalk and they had, I think it was an old lady with a cane or something waiting to cross the street. They discovered that the more expensive the car was, the less likely it was to stop for the woman. Right. So the the conclusions could can vary. One is like, well, they're assholes and they became rich and so they're still assholes. Yeah. But what you're saying is that as you uh, succumb to civilization's seduction and propaganda, you... Yeah. Uh, you value, you think you should value money, so you pursue that. And then you run into this empathy crisis where you're like, shit, I have a lot more money than these other people, and I, I'm in pain. But I have, but civilization provides me almost no way of resolving that, right. that pain. Right, so, you can't help everyone. So, so what do you do? What do you, I do? And, I, and civilization also doesn't even allow me to say, well, how about I scale back my money? I mean, I have clients who I'm working with who are at this dilemma where they are starting to deprogram themselves around this notion of wealth accumulation, which in Seattle is actually a big problem because there's so much wealth to be had. Yeah. There, there are these people, they just chase it at, 
and it's pretty obvious to me just watching their lives go down the tubes, their intimacy, their marriages, their connection with their kids, their, uh, their drug abuse goes up, you know, it just, everything gets worse. And it's just like, well, you know, how about pushing back? And it's like, well, I'm going to get fired. And I'm like, well, then so be it, you know, because the listeners are just like, okay, great. Like I've succumbed to the propaganda. I live in society. I've, I can't go back to the hunter gatherer. Sure. I've been domesticated. Right. What can we do in our American society uh, yeah. practically to make our lives better and more fulfilling? Well, you know, we the way I look at it is we're going to live in a zoo, right? There's no way that we're going to go back to a natural quote unquote world. It doesn't exist anymore. We're domesticated. You know, if hunter gatherers are wolves, we're labradoodles or something. So yeah, that's not an option, but I write in the book about going to a zoo in Bukatingi on the island of Sumatra a long time ago. I was traveling there, and that's um, there are orangutans in Sumatra, and I went to the zoo, and it was like it was the saddest place I've probably ever been. Uh, they were just cages, small cages, concrete, with these orangutans just sitting there, just you know, wishing they were dead. Um, and I didn't go to another zoo for probably 20 years after that until I was working on Sex at Dawn and I was invited to go to the San Diego Zoo to observe the bonobos there. And I went to that zoo and it was like a different world, right? You know, a zoo can be a prison as the Bukatingi Zoo was or it can be an environment that's designed with an understanding and appreciation and respect for the environment in which these animals evolved. So you recreate to the extent possible um, the conditions, the natural conditions of life for those animals. So you house them together in um, sort of social social structures that are appropriate to that animal. Some animals are isolated. Some are in small groups. Some are in larger groups. Some mixed sex. Some, you know, different ages. It depends on the animal. Um, the food that you give them should replicate the kind of food that they would get in the natural world. Otherwise, they'll die. Uh, the exercise patterns, you know, the, the stress levels, all these things are studied and replicated in this artificial world. So what I'm advocating is that why don't we do that for ourselves? We're the only species that lives in the zoo that we ourselves design. Why don't we design better zoos for ourselves? Because right now, most of us are living in something closer to Bukatingi than San Diego. So on a practical level, what can we do? Well, depending on what your age is and, and, you know, if you're 18 years old and looking at life, you can do a lot more than if you're 60 and already sort of, you know, paying for college and trying to pay off the house and all that. I know a lot of a lot of people listen to my podcast and I think a lot of the audience for my books uh, are people who tend to be younger and they're trying to sort of hack life, right? They're trying to find a way to get more while giving away less. And one of the things that you can do is the most important thing is to step back and really analyze the the measures that you're using to judge the value of your life and your friends' lives. What is it that matters? If you're still on the money train, then you're going to be chasing that carrot the rest of your life until you realize that either you'll never catch it or you do catch it and you realize it doesn't taste so good. Um, And I have examples of both of those in Civilized to Death. You know, if you understand what kind of animal you are, you'll have a better 
chance of um, understanding what sorts of things are needed to to live a life that's really worth living. What kinds of shifts do people make that you see or that you might have made when people focus less on money? What do what yeah. do they what do they focus on? Well, for example, I live in I have a very small apartment, it's a studio apartment. I spend half the year living in my sprinter van, traveling around uh it's the third year I've done it this summer. Uh, I travel from L.A. up to the Canadian Rockies and then down through the Rockies to Colorado and back. I do the big circuit. It's fantastic. I meet people, listen to the podcast. I meet p- people randomly and do podcasts with them. Uh, and it costs very little to live in a van. Uh, I outfitted the van with my buddy. I didn't pay a bunch of money for someone else to do it. So every everything in that van, I know how it works. I know how to take it apart. And it's it's a result of a friendship. So if you were focused more on money and status, you would... I'd work all day and pay someone else to renovate the van. And then I wouldn't have enough time to take the van out. And you'd have this bigger house that right. was impressive right. and, and had a big yard and had lots of bills to pay for. <laughs> lots of maintenance. Yeah, yeah. A pool and a guy to do... I mean, and servants and you ever seen those heat, heat maps of houses? These people have these massive houses and they yeah. do a heat map of where they actually go in the house. Right. And it's kitchen, bathroom, bedroom. Yeah. Kitchen, bathroom, bedroom. That's it. Yeah. And they have these huge houses and they never even go into the rooms. Right. But so, it's impressive. It's, it's Impressive it's, to whom? Right? Impressive to other people who've swallowed the same, you know, right. drank the same Kool-Aid that you're drinking. Right. So what I'm trying to say is, like, I lived in Spain for 20 years and the Spanish have a much wiser approach to life. I think, than, than the American culture. Um, so what I advocate is more of a Spanish approach to life where you say, number one, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Americans are sus- suspicious of pleasure. They think pleasure is evil. Everything in America is about work, mm. right? You got to go to the gym and work out. You don't go to the gym to play. You work. Uh, you got to work all day. You got to put in your hours. You got to if you take more vacation time than other people, like you're kind of a slacker. You got to be a team player. You got to really believe in these doodads that we're producing and marketing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all a bunch of bullshit. Mm. And once you realize it's bullshit, and let's face it, we all know it's bullshit. But we need the paycheck, right? So anyway, my point is. Pleasure is not your enemy. Pleasure is your friend. Something feels good. It feels good for a reason. So I was in a restaurant a couple of weeks ago. The waiter came over and said, are you still working on your salad? No, I'm not working on my salad. All right. I'm trying to enjoy my salad here. This is not a job. So this American approach to life where everything is work all the time is it robs you of life. And so I think it's important for people to step back from that. There's nothing shameful about pleasure. There's nothing shameful about lying in a hammock in the backyard and not doing anything. Yeah, what comes to mind for me is I like to stay up late and wake up late in the I'm I'm a night owl. My yeah. whole family's night owls. So inevitably I end up sleeping in till like nine or ten. But I go to bed at like two or three. Right. But I always find that when I tell people, oh, I just got up, I immediately have to justify, oh, but I went to bed at three. <laughs> and, or, but even then, people right. are like, oh, living the high life, right? You yeah. know, just sleeping in all day. Like, right. oh, that must be nice. And there's this notion of I'm lazy and I'm – but one, I, I don't feel like I'm being lazy. And two, it feels good for me to have that to have that shift, you know? Yeah. Or I take naps, you know, I say, oh, living the high life. 
but also there's this propaganda around like, well, if you're napping, you're not working. Right. If you're sleeping in, you're not working. You're not, you're not doing capitalistic work, you know, with yourself. So I want to ask you about evolutionary psychology because a lot of my listeners will ask me about it. It's a very hot topic. People mm-hmm. love to talk about it. Uh, a lot of people have misconceptions about what it is. But we've essentially been talking a little bit about it, about uh, we evolved to a quote-unquote natural state, so to speak, and then civilization kind of screwed that up and pulled us away from what we evolved to be. You know, I agree with some aspects of evolutionary psychology, and I'm often mistaken for an evolutionary psychologist uh, by people who haven't actually read my books. They assume what they're about. But Sex at Dawn is a critique of evolutionary psychology. And so people like David Buss and Pinker and um, Helen Fisher and, you know, sort of the, the best known evolutionary psychologists, particularly in terms of mating behavior, disagree with my approach uh, quite vehemently. But the foundation, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. and maybe I am wrong, is that you still adhere to the premise that we evolved certain instincts. Sure. But that Bus, Fisher, uh, Pinker's take on the data is influenced by the European cultural notion, not on actually looking at the data, actually looking at um, yeah. at pri- primates that don't agree with their point of view. Yeah, at, I at, mean, I I wouldn't want to. I mean, to me, Steven Pinker is a special case. Uh, I have a lot of respect for David Buss and Helen Fisher and um, the other people who've done a lot of work in that area and, and really um, solidified this idea that human beings do have instincts. For a long time, it was thought that humans have no instincts and that we're just totally... Animals have instincts. Right. We're we, different. We choose. Yeah. We have free will. And, yeah. Yeah. I love Christopher Hitchens was asked what his if he believed in free will, and he said, "Of course I do. I have no choice." <laughs> Get it all in there. Um, but yeah, I certainly agree with the premise of evol- evolutionary psychology, which is that humans are animals and that we evolved uh, in a certain context, and that the repercussions of that context uh, reverberate into our into our lives in all sorts of ways both um, obvious and not obvious. My, my disagreement with them is primarily around issues of sexuality and this selfishness, you know, hoarding behavior kind of thing that we were talking about earlier. I think they have a sort of a naive view of human sexuality in pre-agricultural societies. I don't think the evidence uh, is strong at all that men are by nature – uh, driven to monitor women's uh, sexual behavior. I don't think paternity certainty is a major issue in human evolution at all. It denies what I'm guessing your hypothesis is, uh, your theory, and and other people's that share your idea, which is me as well, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it has more to do with the gene pool as, as to a, a, an individual's right. Particular genes, right? Yeah, this this sort of inclusive fitness and very sort of specific measurement of how what percentage of my DNA is in this kid, and therefore I'm going my behavior will be determined by that relationship. This is all game theory stuff. This is all mathematical. It makes sense in a computer model, but when you look at how people actually live, you know, if you, you're walking down the street and you see a kid run into traffic. 
and a truck is coming, you're not standing there thinking, well, Yay. am I related to this kid? And <laughs> yeah. To what extent? Get rid of those genes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, good, good. Get rid of them. It is cultural, though, right? I'm using that word. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, Europeans are particularly individualistic, right? Well, it depends. I mean, you look at a place like Denmark or, or Sweden, and they're not. They're, okay. you know, the sort of. Why uh, are they more that way? Historical precedent, I would say. They're, they are genetically much more closely related to one another, right? So if you're Swedish, there's a Swedish way to do things. I experienced this in Spain even, which has much more of a, a genetic mix than a place like Sweden. But, you know, I was struck as an American living in Spain, there are certain things you don't need to tell a Spaniard. They know how to do it. They know this is the way you behave in this situation. Whereas Americans, because we're such a new country and we have so many subcultures, uh, there's no American way to do most things. Uh, and so we have rules. And, you know, we have this very individualistic uh, sort of uh, approach to life. And that's only constrained by, by rules and regulations and the police are the enemy. And in Spain, the police are there to help you generally. You know, it's – they're not looking to bust people. They're, people are growing marijuana on their balconies overlooking major streets in Barcelona and nobody gave a shit, you know. Here, they're flying around with heat detecting uh, helicopters trying to find uh, yeah. grow operations. It's a different – I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a, a, a very different approach to – um, to what it means to be Spanish or Swedish or Dutch. It's more inclusive. We take care of one another. Uh, we look after one another. Whereas in America, it's uh, much more individualistic, everyone out for themselves. Right. So this question of, yeah, how individualistic we are, it varies culturally, but certainly compared to hunter-gatherers, uh, all all Europeans would be considered quite individualistic. So what can we do as a government? Uh, we It'd be a hard sell, but if we could wave our magic wand, as I sometimes say as a therapist, and get our uh, legislatures to think about your book, <laughs> what could they be doing today that would benefit all of us? What policies could be enacted? Well, certainly universal health care. Uh, you know, would relieve a lot of the stress that Americans live with. You know, everyone's sort of worried what's going to happen if I get sick, what's right. going to happen to my family. So because that's a practical reason why some people focus on wealth is that if I come right. down with, a, you know, 20 year long cancer diagnosis, uh, my even good insurance isn't going to necessarily cover all that. Right. So if you have universal health care, it reduces the at least practical reasons why people pursue wealth in this very anxious way. What else could the government be doing? Programs that mitigate stress and that create a sense of security that you'll be okay no matter what. So universal health care, take much better care of women uh, – when they're pregnant and having kids, you know, in France, you get two years off. In America, you might get two weeks off when you have a kid. So uh, free child care, too, if, if you yeah. need to go to the store or go sure. to Sure, or, or someone that comes to the house to help you. We yeah. are not designed to raise 
kids alone. Right. So. I talk about this all the time because yeah. they actually do these studies where they'll take a community and they'll uh, split it up into to you know a control group and a treatment group. Little things, just like a parenting expert who comes by once a week for a couple hours and hangs out with the family and gives a little bit of advice, but also is there to support a friend. Right. Those kids, just that little bit, are more likely to graduate from high school. They're hmm. less likely to get involved in substance abuse. They're less likely to get involved in crime. They live longer. They track these people for yeah. decades, and there's just all these outcomes. And it's just like, and yet we spend a billion dollars on the next you know, stealth bomber, and it's like, what are we doing to ourselves? Yeah, yeah so... A universal basic income. Yeah. So basically, you're trying to make the government like a large hunter-gatherer tribe. That's right. I'm what I if I could ma- wave a magic wand, as you put it, I would try as much as I could to replicate hunter-gatherer life in the modern world. As the United States, 350 million people all in the same tribe, well, contributing no. to each See, other. See, that's the thing because. Um, this kind of thing doesn't scale very well, mm. you know, and that we've seen that in communism. So I think that it's more of a local thing. For example, I've just bought some land uh, at an undisclosed location. I'm not, not ready to talk about it publicly yet. <laughs> um, but uh, some friends and I got together and we bought land in this little town. And we're all going to go there and help each other build houses. And, you know, we ha- it's not a commune. We each have our own place and all that. But my buddy's got a backhoe, so we're going to use his backhoe. Uh, you know, I have more reach with the podcast, so I'll say, hey, any carpenters want to come and join us? They'll come and join us. So we each will be taking – we'll all be taking care of each other in the ways we can. We have other friends who raise chickens. They'll be the chicken people. We'll get the eggs from them. Someone else is a doctor. She'll take care. So we're trying in our own way to replicate this loving, wow. interconnected community that we're all missing and we all love. And then we'll, you know, if there's a single mother and she needs help, well, come live with us for a while. Let us take care of you. So how could the government get communities to do more of that? Well, they could certainly encourage encourage it in lots of ways, nudge uh, people toward these things. But the problem is... Like tax breaks or something. Well, tax for breaks people or, who share. or zoning issue. You know, you can't have more than one family living in a house. Well, why? Some of these houses are 4,000 square feet and you've got one you know, mom, dad, kid there. That's miserable for everybody. Right. Why can't 15 people live in that house? But that's low house? class and we don't like low class. Exactly. So it, it's, it's about zoning. It's about, you know, ultimately it's about recognizing what works and what doesn't. I mean, it's, it can't get more practical than that. Yeah, I, I, so like birth control, okay. right? Uh, birth control education. I, I look in Civilized to Death, I look at the Dutch approach to, to sex education and the American approach. Oh. Yeah, it, it's absurd. Like you said before, we're, we're diverting money into things, you know, stealth bombers, but we're also diverting millions. I think it's hundreds of millions of dollars into abstinence-only sex education. Yeah. It doesn't work. No, empirically. Empirically. The states that do it, like Mississippi, Alabama, you know, these states have the more highest STIs, rates. Exactly. More, more teenage pregnancies. pregnancies. Yeah. You look at Holland – where it's out on the table, condoms are available at school, people talk about sex openly, parents talk with their kids about sex. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Again, pleasure is not shameful, right? Mm. This is a very American motif. Rates of STIs, teen pregnancy, everything are a fraction of what they are in the United States. Yeah. 
So what works? That's right. that's the thing. So people accuse me of being an ideologue or whatever. Okay, fine. What works? Yeah. What makes people happy? Staring at your phone every night or sitting by a fire? Yeah. When I was poorer and I couldn't afford my own appliances, like a like getting a, a vacuum cleaner was kind of a hardship. It's just like, man. And then later on, I started thinking like people who live close to each other, even in different houses, how much money you could save just on the vacuum cleaner alone. 10 different houses that share that vacuum cleaner. Well, one, everyone saves money. Two, it gives you an opportunity to interact with with each other. Three, if the people who are dedicating their careers and lives and labor to building a vacuum cleaner for every single house, they could be diverted doing something else for society, like actually like feeding the poor. Think of like what we could do as a society if we just focused ourselves. I mean, probably like 99% of our efforts are spent on stuff that could be shared. Well, we sort of are, right? I mean, this is one of the more optimistic points I make in the book that we are taking steps in that direction. For example, Hmm. cars, you know, ride sharing, Hmm. right? We don't, you live in Seattle. I don't know if you own a car, but you sure don't need one Hmm. uh, to live here. I lived in Barcelona for years, never had a car. I could rent one when I wanted to go out of town. Mass transit was really good in town. So, you know, if you ask what governments can do, mass transit is another thing. People don't need cars. They but don't you have to shift it. the culture. You have in to America. shift the value. Just, just, Take just, care of everyone, yeah. not just rich people. That's, but that's such thing. a hard sell, right? Of, well, of, it's a hard sell to whom? First of all, to whom? If, you're, if we're talking to 90% of the people, it's like you get more. This is more for you. So it shouldn't be that hard to sell to tell someone like, you know what, we're going to uh, spend that tax money putting more subway trains in, which is going to make your life easier. And that that's the central point. Louis C.K. did this bit. I know we're not allowed to talk about Louis C.K. anymore, but fuck it, I'm going to. Uh, he did this, this brilliant bit a few five, six years ago uh, where he was talking about how people on airplanes, um, you know, like, you're in a chair in the sky, right? It should just blow your mind every time you fly. But instead, we're complaining the seat doesn't go back. And, you know, he went through all these examples. In the end of it, he said, these days, everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Hmm. That's sort of the basic argument of this book. If everything's so amazing, why are people so miserable? Why are we so unhappy and unhealthy if everything's so bloody great? So... The, the the argument that you make, you know, that people are resistant to these sorts of changes is certainly true. And if I have any ambitions at all for this book, it's that people will read it and, and start to shift their understanding of what a good life is and understand why things don't feel right to them. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault. It's not that you're not working hard enough. It's probably that you're working too hard. It's not that you are sleeping too much. It's that you're not sleeping enough. Mm -hmm. You're an animal, and we are not designed to struggle like this. We're Mm -hmm. not designed to be constantly stressed out. You look at hunter-gatherers. They, I use air quotes, work about 20 hours per week. That's in the Kalahari Desert, right? These are in the harshest environments in the world. And when I say work, I'm referring to things like hunting and fishing and walking around, gathering fruit. These are things we do on vacation. 
These are things we pay money to go do, yeah. right? So this idea that hunter-gatherers were constantly struggling to survive and we're so lucky that we only have to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and go home to our you know, air-conditioned, centrally heated house, that's nonsense. Mm. If you look at – you know, and we touched on this earlier. If you look at people um, who have uh, – who've seen both ways of life – they almost never choose to live in civilization. So there are hundreds of cases, historically verified cases of people who in the colonial America who were captured by Indians, kidnapped, and often you know, in a raiding party, they'll kill the men and they take the women and the children back to the village and adopt them into the tribe. And then a couple of years later, as the frontier is moving westward, you know, the whites will raid that Indian village and rescue the the white women and children. Hundreds of cases where they brought them back to the town. Oh, we saved you. As soon as they got a chance, they ran back into the woods. They didn't want to join civilization. Uh, Native people almost never want to join civilization. Hmm. Why is that? If it's so obviously superior, why are people still running away as fast as they can. Right. I, I'm old enough, 48, to remember a time in the 70s and 80s watching my parents and their generation work 40 hours a week or less. The notion of working more than 40 hours a week was like, well, you, that's terrible. Uh, it's overtime. Or it's taking away from your family. Yeah. Uh, why would I work more than 40? That's, that's anti-American to work 40 and hours. You had enough money working 40 hours a week to raise a family. Uh, what do you talk about in Civilized to Death regarding differences between men and women and uh, what we've done to ourselves in our current society regarding that? Well, in hunter-gatherer societies, women typically have a status equal to men um, or or greater than men, if depending how you measure it, um, but certainly um, not anything like the the status that women – had in early agricultural societies and, and still do in many parts of the world today, which is basically breeding stock. If you read the Old Testament line about thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, which most people understand to be sort of an admonition to respect your neighbor's marriage, right? Don't get involved in your neighbor's intimate life. That's a misreading of it. It's actually about your neighbor's property. If you read it in context, it says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor his ox, nor his slave. The wife is just one of your neighbor's possessions that you should keep your hands off. Um, That's what women became in agricultural societies. They lost all status and are only starting to recover it now in the Western world. Why? I mean, I can imagine, but why would an agricultural society privilege that point of view? Well, uh, there are different arguments for that, and and I think it's probably multifactorial. One is that the upper body strength of men became very important in plowing societies, and, you know, most of the work uh, in the field with the animals was done by men, and they're sort of bigger, stronger, advantage them. Uh, But I think it probably has more to do with the fact that population growth became important. You have land to work. The more kids you have, the more free labor you have on the land, uh, the more sort of um, security you have in your old age because those kids who survive will take care of you. Um, So – And at the same time, you have domesticated animals so that babies can be weaned earlier onto animal milk rather than breastfeeding, which means the woman can get pregnant again sooner. 
Um, so you wanted this woman to just keep pumping out kids. That that was so her value. In hunter-gatherer In hunter-gatherers, they breastfeed for up to four years generally, on average three to four years. And because of the low body fat content of hunter-gatherers, women don't ovulate typically while they're breastfeeding. So even though they're having sex, they're not having babies. This is another issue if you want to go further into women's health. It's really interesting. A hunter-gatherer woman would typically menstruate around a quarter as as many times in her life as a modern woman. So modern women are ovulating three times more uh, or four times more than hunter-gatherer women. Every time a woman menstruates, there are hormonal fluctuations through her body that affect cellular uh, regeneration. And um, so the the leading theory now for why ovarian and breast cancer are so prevalent in the modern world, one of the factors is the fact that women menstruate far more often now than they than they're designed to because they have uh, more a high, high caloric diet. They, well, they start menstruating much younger, around eleven or twelve now in the Western world. You write in your book about how that's due to estrogen being in in a lot and of fat, our, yeah, being yeah, in our diets right. and our plastics and right, this kind of thing. Right, and then the women have. Uh, far fewer babies, and when they do have a baby, they if they breastfeed at all, it'll be for six months, maybe a year, uh, certainly not three or four years as uh, hunter-gatherers do. Um, so all of these things contribute to having menstruating far more often, and uh, you know, the, one of the uh, factors that predicts against having breast cancer is having a child young. You know, that's one of the sort of major things. So when you look at the data for hunter-gatherer societies, there's a much more egalitarian, if not females being in control. That totally flies in the face of what a lot of people, including my common co-host, Umberto, he will say, well, obviously in the past, men were in control. The, the silverback was in control. Uh, and so if anything, we are more egalitarian today than we were 200,000 years ago. What, yeah. do you, what do you say to that? Well, you know, with all due respect to Umberto, uh, gorillas are not a model for human uh, social systems. Gorillas are a harem-based mating system. So what happens in gorillas is the, the males, the adult males will fight and the winner, the silverback, will expel the other males from the group, any sexually mature males from the group. And that gorilla is the only one who mates with those females. Um, this explains why a male gorilla is roughly twice the size of a female gorilla typically because the biggest, strongest male is the one who wins and then he's the only one who impregnates the, the women. So It sexually genes, selects for these gigantic males. Right. But it also explains why gorillas have tiny penises. Because uh, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. There's no sperm competition. Right. Right. Now you look at – I mean a, a male gorilla, a silverback's penis is the size of my pinky finger, fully erect, Right. Um, and testicles are up inside his body. They're not external testicles like humans have and chimps and bonobos. So humans, chimps and bonobos are the three most closely related primates uh, or a apes, certainly great apes. Um, 
chimps and bonobos are equidistant from humans. So I often say it's as if I have twin brothers, right? Like they're super closely related to each other, but then after each other, I'm their next closest uh, relative in terms of shared DNA. So chimps and bonobos are equally relevant to humans in terms of looking at a sort of evolutionary um, map of human behavior. Chimps are male-dominated, uh, quite violent, uh, rape, infanticide, what scientists are calling war, group uh, conflict are all But they're present. not a harem-based. They're not harem-based. No, they have multi-male, multi-female. So there are multiple mature males and females within the social group. Any pairing, coupling happening? Uh, n no, there's something called consortship. <laughs> That's what the scientists call it anyway, which is when one male might try to keep a female separate from the group while she's in estrus. So while she's ovulating, he might sort of take her out into the woods away from the group. Um, in a nice way or in a mean way? You'd have to ask her. Uh, you know, certainly both force has been the males are bigger and stronger than the females. So uh, there's, that's a possibility. But again, that's very complicated when you're talking about animal behavior and ascribing human values to it. Um, but bonobos are female dominant. Uh, the female hierarchy is more important than the male hierarchy. Uh, the female's position in the hierarchy is not based on her strength or ferocity. It's based on how respected she is by the other females. How do they gain respect? By being generous, by being peacemakers, by uh, wisdom, you know, knowing. And not being like the hothead who flies right. off the handle. Right. And the women will band together. The females, yeah. The, uh, yeah. the females yeah. will band together and ostracize the male who's causing trouble. Right, right. Even though he one-on-one, -on -one, he's bigger. But if three of them get together and say, right. get out, you're being annoying. Right. Then Plus, males are getting laid constantly in bonobo society. Okay. Franz Duval, who studied probably the primatologist who knows bonobos and chimps, chimps the best, has said that chimps use violence to get sex while bonobos use sex to avoid violence. Right. So when they smooth things over, they all interact sexually and then share. Okay. They're, they're much more relaxed and, and sort of pro-social. So this person is acting up. They're being a little violent. Let's let's have sex with that with that other bonobo. That'll calm them down. That'll bond right. us to us, and they won't have the urge to be violent. Right. So we came from common ancestors to bonobos and chimps. Right. And yet we have this wide divergence uh, of from our you know our, our brothers who are twins with each other, but not with us. How do we interpret that in terms of what our natural state was back in the day? Well, see, I think that it, it gets complicated to talk about our natural state or, you know, you were using the phrase earlier, uh, we evolved for this or for that. And I was thinking, mm, yeah, like weird language it, and problematic. It, no, for no, sure. it's, it's very it, it's it's hard not to use that kind of language. But well, let me tell you a story that, that encapsulates what I'm trying to say. There, there's a. An insect in North Africa, a grasshopper, that's uh, endemic to North Africa. And like most grasshoppers, they live dispersed. Um, they just eat grass and chill out, and they're, they're pretty laid-back animals. 
sometimes the rains come to North Africa. It rains a lot. The grasslands grow much larger and the population of these grasshoppers increases because there's so much more grass. So now you have far more grasshoppers. The rains stop and these grass, grassy areas start to contract, right? And as they contract, the grasshoppers come into a greater density and at a certain population density, dormant genes are triggered. And so epigenetic changes kick in. And I'm not talking about over generations. I'm talking about in an individual, the front legs get shorter. The back legs get longer. The coloring of the thorax changes. The shape of the head changes. And maybe even their motivation changes. Their behavior changes. Indeed, yeah. it does. And so they go from being these chilled out, relaxed, uh, dispersed grasshoppers to cannibalistic, attacking each other, trying to eat each other, and hyper aggressive. And at this point, they're locusts and they start to swarm. And this is the biblical plague of locusts that we've all heard of. They swarm all over. They eat everything they can find. They destroy the environment. And when everything's gone, they've eaten everything they can, 95% of them die, and the 5% who survive change back to grasshoppers again. So you can say, what's the natural state of that animal? Depends on the environment. Depends on the environment. It's like, you know, what's the natural state of H2O? Could be solid, could be gas, could be liquid. Depends, right? So when we're talking about human nature, I don't want to come across as saying, like, we evolved to be peaceful. We evolved to be cooperative. We clearly have the capacity to be extremely selfish and extremely cruel. Yet, I do think that it's not 50-50, because if you, you know, nobody is suffering PTSD because they helped a stranger, right? It hurts to hurt someone, mm -hmm. except unless if you're a psychopath. But if you're not a psychopath, it's painful to hurt someone. It's painful to ignore other people's suffering, you know, getting back to the, the wealth um, inequality conversation earlier. Um, so I do think we have uh, evolved um, – predilections and preferences despite our wide range of capacities. Um, but I think that right now we're swarming and we're not happy about it and we're destroying everything in our path. And some of us recognize that, no, I'm actually a grasshopper at heart. I don't like this locust bullshit that I'm doing. And so getting back to your earlier question, what can we do? I think, you know, you can, if, if you're if you're clever and you have the resources, you can peel off. You can you can go back to your grasshopper life. You don't need to participate in so the swarm. Part of that is your mindset in terms of if you see the world as a ever sh sh you know shrinking amount of resources, then you're right. you're it's going to trigger certain instincts in you. That's going to that's going to change you into a locust. Yeah. Another uh, uh, solution is to actually create an environment for you that actually is of abundance, like living in a pseudo 2019 commune that has sharing that has that has not the, pers the even the reality of scarcity and of. Um, must grab and must must be selfish, you know, because other people are, you know, surrounding yourself with other givers and sharers will make it so you don't have to change your perspective because it'll it'll just kick in certain instincts that we have. I like that point of view. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you, I mean, it's happening all around us, right? We talked about how technology is enabling 
ride sharing. Airbnb is, you know, allowing us to rent out that room in our house and maybe have strangers come in and, you know, interact in a different way. Um, you know, van life is a big thing now. You know, everybody's he wants to get a sprinter van and go live on the road. There's this voluntary simplicity, maybe you call it even voluntary poverty that people are choosing. Uh, poverty in quotes, of course, because fewer possessions often means more freedom, less stress, higher quality of life. I, as I said, I spent five months this summer living in my van. I didn't miss anything. I had an apartment in L.A. that I was paying rent for every month. What was in there? My iMac, some clothes. Uh, that's about it, hmm. right? I mean, some books. That's that's all I had. And I'm paying you know thousands of dollars a month for that. So I think that we can choose. Henry David Thoreau said, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. And I think there's a great truth to that. I spent years traveling around the world with a backpack, as I mentioned earlier. And those were some of the happiest times of my life, not only because I was young and strong and blah, 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 but because I had everything I needed with me. I knew exactly where it was. I had three shirts. I had two pairs of pants. That was enough. It's still enough. Um and the space in your life that gets opened up when you get rid of all that crap, right? Marie Kondo, is that her name? The mm -hmm. woman who's like, get rid of all your extra clothes and organize. You know, these things, the minimalists, I don't know if you know those guys. They're friends of mine. There are a lot of uh, people who are sort of they're, – they're all going in the same direction. And I think that direction is towards simplicity of possessions and, and increased quality of life through relationships and experiences. Well, I'll let you go. I, I wish we could go on and on and on, uh, Christopher. There's so much that I think I would like to pick your brain about. Uh, you're a very smart dude that's given a lot of thought to things that I, I think are both high academics, empirical data, research, but also very down to earth in terms of what each of us can do. I'm guessing all the listeners have thought about how their lives are situated in, in a way that, you know, makes their life that will promote locust thinking, if you will, uh, and locust behavior and locust needs. And how can we create a grasshopper life <laughs> for ourselves? Get back to the grass. Yeah. <laughs> and people are fascinated with evolutionary psychology and society and government and history. And, and there's, there's just so many different things that you touch on in your book, Civilized to Death. I know a lot of, of our listeners love book recommendations from me. I highly recommend this. It is an easy-to-read book. It's, it's written for the layperson. Sure. But it has actual data in there, and you, you sort of break it down in this way that makes it very convincing. And, and it's very um, revolutionary, a lot of the ideas, because it's so against the norm, even among academics, because the way I look at it is you can't get, it's really hard to get out of the paradigm of your culture. And when you sure. gear the data and the inquiry and the, if you don't watch it, they're going to, they're going to reflect your biases that you've been injected with uh, in terms of the propaganda that goes back to the beginning of time. And so it's hard to see when you live you know, in a society that uh, you're just surrounded by the entire world uh, uh, 
everyone who's quote unquote relevant believes in a certain way. You just think, well, it, it's this is the natural way of things. When we have to go to the woods of nor- northern uh, Amazon, we have to we have to go to those people and say, like, how do you see us? You know, do we look weird to you? And they will say, yeah, there's a lot of weird things about you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So then we have to question ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people of the earth and say, like, maybe we all have this wrong. It doesn't mean we have to become hunter gatherers, but we could engineer our societies today uh, for the betterment of ourselves and the betterment of the planet, the betterment of our our fellow uh, humans. Um, so I, I just think there's a lot of uh, very powerful ideas in this book that everyone should be reading. I, I hope politicians read this. Have you, do you know if politicians are reading this book? Well, it's only been out a couple of weeks, so oh, okay. it takes a while to filter. <laughs> My first book, I, uh, Sex at Dawn, uh, I sort of kept a list of, of you know famous people that I heard or saw that were reading it. It, it appeared on TV shows as a prop occasionally, and I don't know of any politicians who read it, but lots of movie stars and athletes and singers. And, and well, it just seems like one of those things that would really lend itself to to politicians, and, yeah. and, and would even, in a way, help them to be elected. At certain ideas that they promote would would they could yeah. say, "If you read Civilize, Civilized to Death," because uh, there's a very smart writer, uh, you know, Christopher <laughs> I think Ryan. Bernie's the only one who would, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth maybe, but. The, the problem is hunter-gatherers' approach to politics is so different from ours. Mm. If someone um, shows the desire to be a leader in a hunter-gatherer band, they're considered ridiculous and immediately disqualified from leadership. <laughs> <laughs> so it's – you know, I, I think we should, we should elect someone president who really doesn't want to be president. Mm. We should follow a hunter-gatherer approach that way. Wow. I can't see it happening. <laughs> I can't either. But imagine the campaign ads. You know, yeah. the guys I'd vote for me because I don't want the job. Yeah, like don't vote for me. Please. I hate this. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> but if you insist, I'll do it for a while. It's like the co-op president or something. Yeah. yeah. Buy his book, Civilized to Death. Thank you so much for coming on the on the podcast. What's your podcast called? Chris it's Ryan? called Tangentially Speaking. Okay. Yeah. So check out Christopher Ryan's podcast. Imagine him in his Sprinter van somewhere in some national park talking with some other intellectual about important things. <laughs> While um, drinking wine and staring into a fire. Okay. Uh, that's the good life. That's That sounds like the good life, believe me. Um, and thanks for coming by the studio and talking with me, Chris. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, incidentally, I, I feel like um, I, I could really connect with you. I, maybe you get this a lot because if you're zen about life – uh, you, uh, you might attract a lot of people mm-hmm. just being like, man, you, you got a vibe that I want in my life. Do, do you get that a lot? Because I feel that for you right now. I feel this oh. vibe of just like, I want to absorb <laughs> absorb your, your stick. I don't know what it is. <laughs> do you get that from people sometimes? Uh, I do, yeah. And a lot of the people listening to my podcast call me Uncle Chris and like I'm the their kind of cool uncle that they want to hang out with and um, there's a really beautiful community of people that's built up around that, which is one of the reasons I love doing these van trips because I'll, you know, for example, in Seattle, I said, OK, I'm going to be at this pub, you know, on next Thursday at eight and 75 people show up and it's mainly for them to meet each other. Right. Like I know I'm the draw, like whatever, but a lot of them are are. You know, there's a certain type of person who listens to my podcast who's smart and 
cool but a little quirky and maybe has trouble fitting in and doesn't quite buy the you know the conventional view of life yeah and so i think it's really important for them to meet each other and i'm very gratified to see friendships and relationships and things come come to existence through these meetups yeah so it's a really yeah i'm really uh i'm not religious but blessed in a non-religious sense that uh, this community sort of built up, and I actually live from the podcast, and, and it's just donations. Um, for years, it was only donations. I've started doing some ads recently, but um, yeah, it's great. I, I'm very lucky, and I don't think that everybody can live the way I have. I, I chose not to have kids, you know, very early in life. If you have kids, your life's going to be different. But yeah, there's definitely uh, a calm that comes about when you realize you don't need to play the game. Yeah, maybe that's in my future. Uh, the podcast is part of my profession, and me and my wife sometimes fantasize about uh, not necessarily a van, but uh, traveling the world, and and because I can do the podcast from anywhere, right? Right. Maybe you're living my future fantasy. <laughs> Don't wait too long. <laughs> well, everyone, please take care of yourself and take care of other people, and engineer your life for a grasshopper life because you deserve it. 